0: What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So if these verses from James ever caused you any confusion, when you examine your life or you worried or constantly looking for these good works, what are they? Is there maybe a list somewhere that you can go to that make it easy on us to do them? Well, tonight we're going to be in chapter 16. We're going to be considering good works. And if you've been following along with us chapter by chapter, this might be a little bit redundant, but I think it's necessary to say it again. That it is important for us as we consider the chapters, not to read them in isolation. That we can't just read the confession, like Jeff has said so many times, top to bottom. But that we have to read it left to right. We must consider the whole body of work. So chapters build off of each other. We're going to consider some things tonight that were introduced all the way back in chapter one. And then we're going to see other things tonight that is going to be teased out in later chapters of the confession. So then with tonight's chapter we need to consider then where we are in the confession. As we've stated before chapters 7 through 20 are presenting various aspects of God's covenant and his grace to save sinners. So in chapter 7 we have the covenant explained Chapter 8, we see Christ, the mediator of the covenant. Chapter 9, we find an explanation of man's free will. And then beginning in chapter 10, going all the way to chapter 18, we see God's gracious and divine work of making dead men alive in Christ. So in 10 through 13, we see the divine measures of salvation. Effectual calling, justification, adoption, sanctification. Then in chapters 14 through 18, we see man's response to God's actions. Saving faith, repentance, good works, perseverance, and assurance. So our chapter tonight, it also follows five previous chapters that have this language of what's called the Ordo Salutis, or the Order of Salvation. So again, in chapters 10, you have effectual calling, then justification, adoption, sanctification, faith and repentance. So we've just seen God's work in bringing dead men to life. And now we look at man's response to this. So good works then have nothing to do with us being effectually called or justified, meaning they don't merit them. No, instead they're the fruit of these things. Back in chapter 11 on justification in paragraph 2, it says, Faith receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the only instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. So our chapter tonight on good works, then, is gonna define for us what this faith working in love looks like. So if you have your outlines, if you didn't grab one, there's some right over there on the table. But we're gonna look at that really quick. So we're gonna see five main points tonight. We're gonna see the identity of good works. In paragraph one, then we're going to see the nature of good works in paragraph two. We're going to see the source of good works in paragraph three. And we're going to see the limits of good works in paragraphs four and five. And then we're going to see the acceptance of good works in paragraphs six and seven. So let's jump in then to this first paragraph here. Let me read it. Good works are only those works that God has commanded in his holy word. Works that do not have this warrant are invented by people out of blind zeal or on a pretense of good intentions and are not truly good works. So in this first paragraph, we identify what good works are. And we see both a positive and a negative. So positively, good works are only those that are commanded by God's word. That we're to look to God who alone is good. And what he has given us in his holy word to know what is good. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So only God speaking in scripture can then rightly define for us what good works are. So this also gives us then our boundaries, our our limits to what can actually be called a good work. This is a wonderful blessing for us. That we're not left to our own sinful devices to decide then what is good and what God requires of us. Now he has told us what is good in his word. Again, this takes us all the way back to chapter 1, paragraph 1. The holy scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, infallible standard of saving knowledge, faith. And now here's the key word for us tonight. And obedience. So we see this doctrine later applied in the confession. When we get to Christian liberty in chapter 21, that God alone is the Lord of the conscience, and that we are bound by what is found in his holy word, not in what man has devised on his own. And we're going to see it in chapter 22 on religious worship. That man is not responsible or even allowed to come up with our own ways to worship God. No, he has told us how he is to be worshipped in his word. Oh, so then this doctrine really should make us Bible people. We should be mining the scriptures when we read them and study them. To see what has God telling us, what has he told us is good. Good. Because he has said that he has given us everything we need for godliness, including how we are to obediently walk in good works. Well, then there's a negative statement here, too. If that's what good works are, the negative statement then says, works that do not have the warrant of Scripture, works that are invented by people out of blind zeal or on a pretense of good intentions, are not truly good. So anything then that is devised by men intending to be called a good work, listen, if it is not found in scripture, then it is not in the biblical sense a good work. This gets right to the heart of man-centered religion. Thinking that somehow in our own wisdom that we can find the things that please God. Because... When our hearts really desire this, we're really trying to please ourselves, to glorify ourselves. Because there can be a lot of works that are good. But if they're not found in scripture, then they're not a good work. Because are we so wise that we can define and know what pleases God? I mean, I found myself even as we were, as I was studying these things, I wanted so badly to either make a list or find a list to give us, to say, this is what we're to do. Yet God in his wisdom didn't give us a list. Even the confession doesn't give us a list. Because again, this would lead us to pride and idolatry. Instead, in his word, God has told us and shown us, in the example of his son, what is good. Micah 6, 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So I think the problem with us wanting a list of things to do is this, again, this leads us then to thinking we must do these things to be saved. Or if we do these things, then maybe this will keep us saved somehow. But that's not the point of our good works. Again, like we've already said, good works are the fruit of the one who has been effectually called and justified. But then, if we have now a definition of good works, why are they important? Let's look at paragraph two. Let's read this with me. These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruit and evidence of a true and living faith. Through good works, believers express their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, build up their brothers and sisters, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of opponents, and glorify God. Believers are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, so that they bear fruit leading to holiness and have the outcome, eternal life. This first sentence here is so important for us. And even though we've already heard it tonight, we need to keep repeating it because we so quickly forget it. Romans 3.20 is very clear that by no works of the law can man be justified. Our works cannot save us. So then what's the point? Why do them? The first reason is because true faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by good works. This is James 2. In verse 17, James says that faith without works is dead. He gave the example of one who sees a brother or sister who's poorly clothed and hungry And he tells them to go in peace, be warmed and filled. But then they don't actually give them anything. They don't do anything for them. James says, what good is that? And he follows this up by saying that it's hard to show someone your faith without works. Faith alone is not something that you can see. But he says that he will show his faith then by his works. Again, our works... Show our faith in Christ. They are the fruit of our faith. Second, our good works show our thankfulness to God. We were once in darkness. We were dead in our sin. We were separated from God. Yet in his grace and mercy, he made us alive in Christ. He saved us. He brought us into the kingdom of light. The kingdom of his son. So our union with Christ then has given us new life. Romans says that our old life in the flesh was crucified with Christ. And that we have now been raised to walk in new life. That we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. So then our good works are done in thankfulness and light of our union with Christ. This union can't be something like we talked about last week that happened back then. Now it must be something that we hear and are reminded of daily. Because otherwise we begin to do these works out of a sense of merit to try to cover up our sin. Well, third, our good works strengthen our assurance. Our good works are a testament to the Spirit's work in us. I think a key word here is strengthen our assurance. Our good works are not our assurance. Now, our, again, our, I'm going to say union with Christ a lot tonight, so just be ready for that. Our union with Christ and his work and salvation is our assurance. But when we are obedient to God's word and we do the things that are commanded in it, oh, then that is evidence of the Spirit's work in us. Fourth, we edify the brethren with our good works. Our obedience to God's words builds up others. It gives others reason to glorify God. This is why Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to be salt and light, that our light should shine before men so that they may see our good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Because our good works don't come from us. They're commanded by God and they are brought about by God's word and his spirit. So God rightly then deserves the praise for our good works. And similarly, our good works not only build up the brethren, but they adorn the profession of the gospel. My Muslim friends used to always ask me, if you're, forgiven everything, then why don't you just live however you please? We would often go to Matthew 18 when they would say things like that. It's the parable of the unforgiving servant. The servant was forgiven a sum by the king that he would never be able to pay and so instead of being separated from his family and sold into slavery, the king forgave him everything. But then he turns around and he finds someone who owes him a small amount of money And he beats the guy up and he throws him in prison And he shows him none of the mercy and the grace that he had just received And this parable it's supposed to be shocking to us when we see that It always was to my friends when they would see it And I'd ask them you know if you had been forgiven such a debt like this How would you want to repay it? Would you just want to ignore this one who showed you this kindness? Just live however you want. Do our lives adorn the gospel? Are we like this unforgiving servant who lives as though he has not been justified and forgiven? Do our good works make the gospel attractive? You know, the way that we interact with our coworkers, the way that we respect our bosses, the way we treat our neighbors, our spouses and our kids. Listen, our good works should make the gospel appealing to others. And then again, similarly, our good works stop the mouths of our opponents. The world may stumble over our profession of the gospel but not in the way in which we live. You know, I think an obvious negative example of this is the Westboro Baptist Church. I think the world looks at that and all they see is hatred. Again, what they were wanting to do, a desire to protect life is good, but their actions did not adorn the gospel. they're contrary to the grace and mercy that has been shown them. They don't stop the mouths of opponents, but instead they open them up. Well, then finally, the last thing here, our good works ultimately lead to God's glory. Paul tells the Philippian church in chapter one that his prayer is that their love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, So that they would approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness or good works that come through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So our good works bring praise to our God. Why? Because as the confession says, this is what we were created for. Look at that last sentence. This is why we do good works, because we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So the role then of our good works is that they bear fruit in leading to holiness and to have the outcome, which is our eternal life. And to be clear, again, good works... Are not what merit eternal life. Our effectual calling and justification do that. But good works are necessary for eternal life. As we said earlier, faith without works is dead. Now, this leads us into our next paragraph. We're going to see the source of our good works. So let's look at paragraph three. Their ability to do good works does not arise at all from themselves, but entirely from the Spirit of Christ. To enable them to do good works, they need, in addition to the graces they have already received, an active influence of the Holy Spirit to work in them, to will, and to do his good pleasure. Yet this is no reason for them to grow negligent, as if they were not required to perform any duty without a special motion of the Spirit. Instead, they should be diligent to stir up the grace of God that is in them. So we see right there in that first sentence that the good works we do for God, we do in the power of God. In fact, it says that the ability for us to do good works is not at all of ourselves. We can take no credit for them. But it says that they are entirely from the spirit of Christ. The Confessions points us here to the importance again of our union with Christ. Consider John 15. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So we cannot bear fruit apart from Christ. We need, as it says here in this paragraph, an active influence of the Holy Spirit. So because of the graces we have already received, like our adoption and our sanctification, that we have been given the Holy Spirit, which now enables us to do good works. Again, this should be of great encouragement to us. When we see things in Scripture, like in Philippians 2, that say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, this is not God telling us that we need to do something to merit our salvation. No, instead, we're to understand this is God telling us to walk humbly before him. Because in verse 15, he's, he reminds us that it is God who works in you, both to well and to work for his good pleasure. So our working, our good works, they do not come from us. They come from the Spirit working in us. So again, it is the fruit of our union with Christ. But now before before we think, well then I'll just wait until I get prompting from the Spirit to do anything good. The writers of the confession are going to say, not so fast. The second half of paragraph three says that this is no reason to grow negligent waiting on a prompting of the Spirit. Instead, we are to be diligent to stir up the grace of God that is in us. So we're not to rely on our feelings. Instead, we're to rely on the means of grace and the Holy Spirit to stir us up and grow us in grace. If you look back at Chapter 13, paragraph 3 on sanctification says, In the war, the remaining corruption may greatly prevail for a time, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part overcomes. So the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. They pursue a heavenly life in gospel obedience to all the commands that Christ, as head and king, has given them in his word. So, one key way that we do this, again, is by the ordinary means of grace that God has given us in his church. Through the preaching of the word, through the singing of the word, seeing it in the ordinances. Having the saints gather together to stir one another to love and good deeds. Again, we're going to see the important, importance of all this when we get to chapter 22. Oh, but this is one of the, the key means that God has given us. To stir one another. To do good deeds. So we rely then on the Holy Spirit and the means of Grace that God has given us in his word to continue growing in holiness and in good works. So now we, it seems like the confession takes a little bit of a shift here. You have some hopeful things there in the first three chapters. We've had good works defined. We've seen the reason for them, the source of them. But now the confession is going to point to their limitations. We're going to see first in paragraph four that we cannot do more than God requires. And then in paragraph five, the good works cannot merit pardon of sin. So let's look at paragraph four. Those who attain the greatest heights of obedience possible in this life are far from being able to merit reward by going beyond duty or to do more than God requires. Instead, they fall short of much that is their duty to do. So this paragraph is a response to the tenant in the Catholic Church that would say, that it's possible then for some believers to do more than God has required in their good works. These would be those who were designated as saints and they were believed to achieve some divine standard of good works. And these works were then stored up so that the church could then distribute them in various ways to those who are unable to achieve this. This paragraph then is meant to move us to humility. That we are to walk humbly before God in dependence on his spirit. Even on our best days. Even those believers who we say, man, they are just so diligent to pursue holiness. Even they fall so short. We've already said that The good works required of us are from God's word. So even if a Christian were to personally, perpetually, and perfectly do all that God requires in his law without fail, which they won't do, but even if they did, then all you have done is what God has required of you. You have not done more than he requires Paragraph 5 then continues in in the limitations that we cannot, even by our best works, merit pardon of sin or eternal life from God's hand due to the huge disproportion between our works and the glory to come and the infinite distance between us and God. By these works, we can neither benefit God nor satisfy him for the debt of our former sins. When we have done all we can, we have only done our duty and our unprofitable servants. Since our good works are good, they must proceed from his spirit. And since they are performed by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot withstand the severity of God's punishment. So our righteousness can never be found in our good works, but only in Christ. Just as chapter 7 on the covenant states in paragraph 1, though rational creatures are responsible to obey God, their creator, the distance between God and their creatures is so great that they can never have attained the reward of life except by God's voluntary condescension that he has been pleased to express this through a covenant framework. So for man to be saved, God must act. And he was pleased to do this in his son, who fulfilled all the demands of the law which we could not. So then our righteousness that we boast in is only found in the righteousness of Christ. Only in Christ's life and perfect obedience and substitutionary death Is God's divine justice satisfied? I love the line right in the middle of this paragraph where it says that when we have done all we can, we have only done our duty and our unprofitable servants. This is taken from Luke 17, verse 10. And again, it is meant to remove all our boasting in our works that we are commanded to do good works by God. It is our duty then as his servants to do them. I've got a group of buddies from high school that we do a group text thread. We're texting every once in a while. And one of them is a rancher up in Oklahoma. He's got a ton of kids. And a while back, he sent us a picture in this group thread. And there's three kids in a side-by-side and then it, he said, babysitting while checking calves. And I remember looking at that text, and I responded, I was like, bro, those are your kids. Like, you're not babysitting, you're just parenting. Like, you're just doing what you're supposed to do. That's your duty, is to take care of your kids. So when we do good works, listen, this is our duty, we're not doing anything special. We're doing what God requires of us. There should be no boasting and just merely doing the job God has given us. This paragraph goes on to say that these good works, again, they must proceed from the Spirit, because as they're performed by sinners, they're defiled And they are mixed with so much weakness and imperfection. But again, thankfully the chapter doesn't end there. Now it's going to go on now and talk about the acceptance of good works. So we've again seen the limitations of them. So if they're so limited, then how does God accept them? Let's look at paragraph six. Nevertheless, believers... Hang on, am I... Let me... Yeah. Nevertheless, believers are accepted through Christ and thus their good works are also accepted in him. This acceptance does not mean our good works are completely blameless and irreproachable in God's sight. Instead... God views them in his son, and so he is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, even though it is accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. So the flow of the paragraph follows up, again, these previous two in encouragement to believers. Because of our union with Christ, our good works done in obedience through the Spirit are guaranteed to be accepted. Not because of any virtue in us or our works, but because we are Christ's workmanship created to do them. The doctrine of our union with Christ is so vital for the Christian life. Our justification is in Christ. Our adoption is in Christ. Our sanctification is in Christ. And our good works are accepted because we are in Christ. Now the, the chapter is going to end then considering What about the works done by non-believers? So paragraph seven says, works done by unregenerate people may in themselves be commanded by God and useful to themselves and others. Yet they do not come from a heart purified by faith and are not done in a right manner according to the word nor with the right goal, the glory of God. Therefore, they are sinful and cannot please God. They cannot qualify anyone to receive grace from God. And yet their neglect is even more sinful and displeasing to God. So right off the bat, it's important to note that The term good is not in front of works here. That it just begins with works done by unregenerate people. Whereas up in paragraph six, you see good works are describing believers works. And it's not that non-Christians can't do good things. I mean, I know non-Christian men who are good husbands and fathers I think we probably all know examples of non-Christians who are generous with their money and their time. Yet the confession states that these things do not come from a heart that is purified by faith. They are not done in accordance with Scripture. So ultimately they are not done to the right end, and that is to glorify God. So only works done according to God's word, empowered by his spirit, and done to his glory then, like we've already seen tonight, is considered a good work. And non-believers cannot and do not do this. If you consider Cain and Abel, they they both brought gifts and sacrifices to God, yet one was accepted and one was not. So what was the difference? Hebrews 11 tells us that by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. So it was offered from a heart purified by faith, and it was accepted. In the famous passage on love in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that even if you do a lot of good things, even in things that seem spiritual, yet you do them contrary to the word of God, They are worthless. They are nothing. Non-believers do not have the word of Christ dwelling in them. And they are unable to obey according to God's word. But ultimately, the good things they do are not done to the glory of God. Again, this doesn't mean that their reasons are necessarily bad. They could be wanting to help or have values that are in line with with things that we might agree with. This is just God's common grace to man. But their heart's chief desire is not to bring glory to God. But then the confession concludes with what displeases God even more is when these works are not done at all. Their neglect of doing good is even more sinful and displeasing to God. We see in scripture that man is without excuse. We have the law of God written on our hearts Paul says in Romans that what can be known about God is plain to men. When men neglect to do good, they will receive God's just wrath. But now, In, in conclusion, to, to wrap all of this up, I, I want to be, again, just really clear on something. That there's a reason that we find good works where we do in the confession. Like I stated at the beginning, that we have already seen God's gracious work in saving us. That he called us, he justified us, and he sanctified us. And that there is no other work that you must do to be saved. So I don't want anybody to leave here tonight and think, golly, there's a lot I need to do. Remember the source of our good works are from God and his spirit. So we should desire holiness. We should desire for our lives to be marked by good works. But we must rest in the knowledge That it is God who wills and works in us. Our union with Christ must be in the forefront, not at the backdrop. Because it is our union with Christ which allows us to do good works. So listen, let's work hard to do good works. Knowing that these good works are for God they're from God, and that our ability to do them is only found in God. Let me pray. Father, again, we are thankful for these things. We're thankful, Father, of the sufficiency of your word. We're thankfulness. We're thankful for the fact that Again, our righteousness, Father, is found in Christ and Christ alone, and not in, not in our good works. Because as, as we have seen, even the best of us fall, fall so short. So, Father, I pray that our boast would be in Christ and Christ alone, in His perfect righteousness. And as we rest in that glorious truth, Father, would you make us men and women who, de- who desire to do good works, who desire to live obediently according to your word. Father, would you help us to be Bible people, to be people who are in your word and taking the truths and the commands that we find in there and applying it to our lives. And as we do, would we do it again in faith and humbly walking before you in the power of the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.